You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here's Nate. Well, Proverbs chapter 16 through 22 give us a collection of sayings that exalt a life of righteous living. And so for that reason, this portion of Proverbs is most helpful to the believer that needs constant encouragement to live the righteous life. And as I've mentioned before, the Proverbs are so wonderful because the collection is wide and varied. So for instance, in this chapter, chapter 16, as we move through it, we are going to deal with uh, hundreds of subjects within the confines of this one chapter. So it's very helpful to the modern believer to read through the Proverbs to receive encouragement. You're bound to find something in that chapter for that time that you sit down for that day that speaks to a situation that you're in or an area of life that you need wisdom for. And because these Proverbs are so practical, and because they exalt a life of righteous living, so often the same proverb or the same saying that you've interacted with in years previous is going to interact with you in a new and different way the next time that you read it. Because who knows what new situation you'll be in. For, for example, if there is a proverb relating to or talking about bad friendships, people who drag you down, well, when you're 17 years old, that is going to connect with you in a different way than when you are 57 years old. And so the wisdom of the Proverbs resounds all throughout the human life. So we come to Proverbs chapter 16. And again, this is a section of Proverbs that each line really is its own standalone statement or saying. And most of these Proverbs are comparisons, and some of them are contrasts. The first one, verse 1, speaks of the Lord, one of the Proverbs that actually has the name of the Lord in it. And in fact, he's found in these first seven Proverbs. And so he says in verse 1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, in making this statement, the concept is that we make our plans, but the Lord must refine those plans by the time our plans get to our tongue. I think the New Living Translation says this proverb well. It says, we can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. Now, probably there's something to this proverb that is highlighting the sovereignty of God, that even as we make our plans, the Lord supervenes over our plans and produces his answer or his desire. But it, it also seems that the highlight of what is being introduced here is the concept that in your heart, you might come up with the plan. In your heart, you might have the thought of what you want to do or what you'd like to be. And as you create that plan, it will be the Lord, if you're walking with him, if you're enjoying him, it will be the Lord who, by his spirit, helps you 
to actually speak that plan. And so often what has begun in the heart is shaped by the spirit. Then if you're again, if you're walking with the Lord, this is the ideal situation, but the spirit then shapes it. And what comes out of your mouth is actually clearer and better than what was developing inside uh, your heart. And so this is so fun when you can see the Spirit of God shaping a plan as you talk about it, as you formulate it. I know for me, one of the most joyful experiences is to sit with people that I trust and to bat around the plans of the heart and to watch the Lord by his spirit shape our words to help us get to the real plan. Now in verse two, he goes on to say, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So the idea here is that God weighs the motives of a man. Nearly every other translation does not say that he weighs the spirit, but that he weighs the motives, the the desires, the thoughts of man. And so God, he, as he looks into our hearts, we might feel pure in our own eyes. We might feel that our motivation is pure, but the Lord, he's the one who is able to actually accurately weigh our motives. We are so often easily self-deceived. And so with that understanding, a great application of this proverb would be to make sure that we guard against the possibility of self-deception by giving God space to weigh in on our motives. I think this is one of the reasons that a daily devotional life is so powerful and important. You're giving God space to speak into your heart. But beyond that, to have good Christian friendship and fellowship and accountability, avenues where people of God can look upon your life and speak into your heart is greatly beneficial to guarding against just doing something that from our own estimation seems to come from a pure motivation. But actually, if God had a chance to speak into the situation, he would show us that our motivation is impure. He says in verse three, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. You know, there's nothing like the establishment of a plan or the establishment of a dream. It's just absolutely beautiful. It makes me think of Nehemiah chapter 12, when Nehemiah, after an an entire book where he had a passion, a vision, a dream to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, where he finally accomplished the task and appointed two Thanksgiving choirs to go up on top of the walls and to actually sing to the Lord songs of thanksgiving from that wall. The idea is, man, the plans that we had were established by God. And Nehemiah the whole time had committed his work to the Lord. And so the Lord had engaged himself in Nehemiah's life and had established his plans. Verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, this is a fascinating verse. And of course, any passage of scripture, and there are many, that deals with the eternal judgment of the non-believing world, any verse like that, it causes us immediately in our hearts, there's some tenderness. 
Because the reality is the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is his strange work. And it is hard for us because we know that God loves people. And we know that we, as a result of God's love, are to love people. And, and in a sense, we do love people. And we know, First Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Understanding all of that, it's difficult for us to consider the eternal judgment of God at times. But here, the verse is telling us that the Lord has made everything for his purpose. Now, I don't know that we should think of this as the Lord making the wicked for the day of trouble in the sense that this was his design for them. Like I said, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In a sense, as if it's as if the proverb is saying, every single human being on earth has been made by the Lord. And there's a way for the wicked to escape that horrible day of trouble that is coming. And of course, we understand that the way of escape is the gospel message itself. Verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. This is speaking of the prideful heart. Well, God is looking for humility. Verse 6, be, be by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, this verse is beautiful because it shows us both sides of dealing with sin. First of all, it's by the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in Christ, in the gospel, that our sin is forgiven, that our sin is atoned for. That's step one. But after our sin is atoned for, what do we then do? Well, we are to turn away from evil. How does that happen? How can it happen that first step one, we have our sin atoned for us, but then step two, we turn away from evil? Well, he says it very clearly. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The fear of the Lord is a constant theme all throughout the Proverbs, and it is frankly a missing ingredient in the life of many believers. It's so important for you to have a personal inward respect and reverence and honor for God. That respect and fear for the Lord will follow you into every category of your life, enabling you to live a life of righteousness for him. Now, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, there are times where it's good to be reminded that the Proverbs provide generalizations along with Old Testament realities. You know, in the Old Testament era, if you were walking with the Lord, you would expect that you would be at peace with even your enemies. But in a sense, what's happening here is the Old Testament version of the New Testament verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. There, in talking about the spiritual war and the spiritual enemy that believers have, Paul tells us that we should gird ourselves with the whole full armor of God and that one of the things we should gird ourselves with is the belt of truth. What that speaks of 
probably is not just girding ourselves with the truth of God's word. That is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But the belt of truth seems to be a life of inward integrity and faithfulness, a true life. And we have to realize that a life of integrity, a life that is true, is a life that is victorious. God is looking for, and I, and I say also, people are looking for men and women who possess this level of internal consistency. Think of the words of Jesus. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now in verse 8, the proverb says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. I love these better than proverbs all throughout the book of Proverbs. And here we have another one. The idea is few possessions with righteousness is better than much gain with dishonesty. Obviously, the two are not mutually exclusive. It's possible to have much gain with righteousness. But if given a choice between the two, righteousness with a little is better than great revenues with injustice. And I wonder how many of us would naturally choose that or naturally think that way. It it takes a reprogramming by the power of the Holy Spirit working within our hearts to get us to a place of saying, you know what? Better is a little with righteousness. The heart of man, verse 9, plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The idea here seems to be that human decisions And divine guidance intermix, resulting in ultimate success. So the qualifier of this, obviously, would be that you must walk with the Lord. As you're walking with the Lord, your plans and the Lord's divine guidance are going to find some kind of mixture together. And you are going to see the Lord perform his perfect will and work in your life. Verse 10, an oracle is on the lips of a king, his mouth does not sin in judgment. Now, these next few verses, all the way through verse 15, are a series of proverbs about kings and about leaders. And really what it is, is a portrait of the ideal king. And probably we're meant to remember that David is in the mind of the author. And so first we see here that the lips of a king speak an oracle, his mouth does not sin in judgment. The idea here, or what should be communicated here, is that the king should not give an unfair judgment. He should not err in judgment. He should not sin or transgress in judgment. In other words, those in leadership should realize the weight of their words. You know, if you're in leadership, you should recognize that what you say to the people that are under your care Your words have great value and great weight in their lives. So make sure that your words are not words filled with sin, but words that are filled with life and truth. Then in verse 11, he goes on to talk of the king and says, A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Now, often it was the king who established the weights and measures of the kingdom. Uh, There's a little verse in 2 Samuel 14, verse 26, which talks about weighing something by the king's weight. So here we see that God is actually behind 
the standards that the king sets. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. So the idea then is that the governing authorities so often are a direct extension of God's authority. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 13 that we should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And Paul calls them in Romans chapter 12 ministers of God. Now this is hard to imagine during times where we're watching corruption and sin. But the reality is that behind all of it, the Lord is active. Verse 12, it is an abomination to kings to do evil for the throne is established by righteousness. This is so true because when you think about it, the king is like a tone setter for morality in his kingdom. And leaders are tone setters for morality amongst the people that they lead. The man or the woman is the message. And when a leader has bad morality, it's often hard for us to draw a direct line from their immorality to the immorality of the people that they lead, but a line and a connection often exists. In verse 13, it says, Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A good king hates lies and loves the truth. Honesty flows from the leader into his people. So again, the king is sort of that moral tone setter in many ways for the people that he leads. A king's wrath, verse 14, is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. In other words, it takes a wise person to know how to calm down a wrathful, out of control king or leader. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face, there is life and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Now, this reminds us to a degree of the ironic blessing in Numbers 625, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Uh, leaders here should realize the influence they have upon those they're responsible for. Their face illuminates in the light of the king's face, there is life. His favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, where Paul imagined the new community of the church living out this new glorious gospel. And he presented three categories of the world that so often injustice and inequity are found. He talked about women in their relationship to husbands. He talked about children in relationship to fathers, and he talked about slaves in relationship to their masters. And so often that is what we see in the world. We see injustice or inequality when it comes to women or children or the working class. And so often we want to fight for women. We want to fight for children. We want to fight for the working class. Paul's way, though, of thinking about it was to help them along by speaking to the leaders. And he said to the masters, he said, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. 
he posited a completely different way of leading, understanding that the way that those men and women would lead in that culture as Christians would greatly, beautifully, positively impact the people that were under their care. Now, in verse 16, we move past the king section into, again, some common statements or words of wisdom. How much better to get wisdom than gold, verse 16? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So again, a better than proverb, given a choice, wisdom and understanding is better than gold. This is great for us to consider in the information age that we're living in. Competition abounds for your attention, so you have to fight to become a learner. Verse 17, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. In other words, if you are willing to put guards in place in your life to help keep you from sin, some internet accountability, some financial accountability, some travel accountability, some, you know, talking to you about how your prayer life is, you know, that kind of accountability. If you're willing to put some of those guards in place, your life will be like a smooth highway in in many ways. Again, this is a generalization of the Proverbs. Pride, verse 18, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is a famous proverb. We've heard of this one plenty of times. It reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? There was that moment in his life where he looked out at Babylon and said, Is not this great Babylon on which I have built by my mighty power a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And the second that came out of his mouth, the Lord struck him with insanity. And for a number of years, he was removed from his position, from his throne. He was humbled by the living God. It's good for us to stay low. It is better, verse 19, to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. To divide the spoil with the proud seems like victory for a moment, doesn't it? You know, that you're dividing up the spoil. But what he's saying is, in the end, it's actually destruction. You've cut corners to get the victory. And in a corner-cutting society, we must never think that we could, as believers, truly get ahead and win when we use sinful means to do so. No, we must say it's better to be of lowly spirit and not quote-unquote win than it is to cut corners and win with the proud. Verse 20, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Because uh, the word here is compared with him who trusts in the Lord, what this seems to mean, or what we can conclude, is that this wise person is listening to biblical instruction. In other words, he's not just listening to words, and he's not just listening to the word of God, but he's listening to words from the word of God. So he's listening to biblical teaching. He's receiving that. And this is a life of great blessing. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writing to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, he said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 
the wise in heart, verse 21, is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. If you can learn how to speak with sweetness, it will increase your effectiveness when communicating in nearly every format that you might communicate. The written word to your children, teaching the Bible, communicating in a Sunday school class, on the job, at work, knowing how to use sweetness, knowing how to be charming, knowing how to use humor, knowing how to disarm with self-deprecation, knowing how to do all of that, and, and being kind and gentle and sweet really helps your message actually do what you're desiring for it to do. It can actually persuade. But if you're rough and gruff and angry and just plain old don't like people, well, the reality is your speech will not be as persuasive as you'd like it to be. Good sense, verse 22, is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. Jesus, of course, talked of the Pharisees as being those who were blind leading the blind. And this is the concept here. The instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise, verse 23, makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. In other words, wise people make sense because they increase learning. So they become persuasive. You know, the, the, the more that you know, the more that you learn, the more that your speech becomes judicious and persuasive. So again, wisdom comes through that learning. Gracious words, verse 24, are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. You might remember in the book of 1 Samuel the people of Israel went out into battle while Saul was king and his son Jonathan went out into the battle as well and was very courageous. And Saul, in seeing the battle rise up, said, no one's allowed to eat anything until we get the victory. Jonathan hadn't heard that and emaciated in battle, he came across some honeycomb. He ate it and was enlivened for the fight. The thing is, that gracious words are like that honeycomb that can enliven us for the fight. They help us. They change us. They speak to us. They are sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Oh, that we would speak gracious words to one another. There is a way that seems right to a man, verse 25, but its end is the way to death. This is verbatim of chapter 14, verse 12. Some proverbs just need repetition. And again, the idea, there's something that feels very natural about sin, but it consumes to kill. A worker's appetite, verse 26, works for him. His mouth urges him on. And so again, you consider how God has given humanity desires that are designed to grow us. And here, the desire is an appetite. You need to eat food. And that appetite can help you become a hardworking person. You see, even before the fall, we were to be a hardworking people. Adam was laboring in the garden. Just like even before the fall, we were a sexual people. 
But the reality is that a desire for sex should lead someone to say, man, I need to grow up and become mature so that I could be a full-grown man, full-grown woman, and, and be able to find a spouse and get married and enjoy that sexual relationship. And the same is true with your appetite. Man, I want to become a worker. I want to become a person who labors well. A worthless man, verse 27, plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. In other words, this is a man who starts a fire with slander. A dishonest man, verse 28, spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Again, another verse concerning slander. And then again, verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. This concerns evil friendships and associations who we're surrounding ourselves with. And then in verse 30, whoever winks his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. The idea of the winking and the pursing his lips is that these are dead gestures to us. In other words, we don't know what these nonverbal gestures particularly looked like, but what we can discern is that these were nonverbal gestures designed to communicate in that culture some intention to do evil. And it's not hard to imagine this kind of thing, the knowing glance, the gaze, the special kind of look that says, will you enter into sin with me? Gray hair, verse 31, is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Now the question is, why is gray hair a crown of glory? The better question is, why was it in that era a crown of glory? Because the reality is, in those days, you did not become aged unless you lived by wisdom. We live in an age of medical advancement where you can be wicked and foolish and still live long enough to get a gray head of hair. The aim of our lives is to get older and to let the years go by, but to only do that with integrity and with righteousness. So it's not any old gray head of hair anymore that's a crown of glory. It's a life that is long lived with integrity. Whoever, verse 32, is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, to control your temper is better than being a heroic warrior. And then finally, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now they had various ways of casting lots to make decisions, sometimes with various stones or different colored stones, sometimes with pottery pieces that would have names inscribed on them, kind of like the flipping of a coin. But here, the proverb is saying, the Lord is involved in the decisions that we make. He's involved in the mundane of life. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.